The road stopped at the lake. The men knew there was only one way forward, but none except one was willing to go on. The great sword Runting shall be returned to Unferth. The riches you bestowed upon me shall be sent to Hoyalok. May he live long and serve his people well. The Geats that stand with me, promise them your protection. Dear Hrothgar, you once called me your son, and I too now shall call you my father. Speak well of me. I promise, dear Beowulf, to do these things. But surely, for Grendel's bane, this is the same as hunting a boar. Surely you will live. Beowulf looked out across the lake at the strange bonfire that erupted from its center. He searched below the surface, but his eyes met only the black depths, a true glimpse into nothingness. Surely I will die. He turned to face the men behind him, Hrothgar and his Danes, his own fellow Geats. He smiled wide, as only a man ready to test fate would, ready to read the threads of his life that had already been woven. But for the glory of man, such a task is worth it. And with that, Beowulf dove into the lake and was swallowed by the unknown abyss. Welcome to Mythology, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we present dramatic stories from ancient mythology and explore their origins. I'm your host and narrator, Vanessa Richardson. You can find all episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythology for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythology in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're continuing our story of Beowulf as he takes on the second monster of his storied life. It's important to remember that while Beowulf was written around the 8th century, its story is set several hundred years before then, which means that even as scholarly communities continue to guess about the intentions of the anonymous author of Beowulf, the author was themselves guessing at a more tribal life in Scandinavia. By the first millennium, the spread of Christianity had fundamentally changed the Scandinavian civilization. Drinking halls were replaced with monasteries, pride with humility, uncensored bloodshed with careful praise, oral stories with written ones. So while we must take the word of the author with a grain of salt, the blending of the Christian and pagan system of values offers a unique perspective one of a 9th century Scandinavian justifying their tribal history. This is seen clearly in the women that dominate the second part of the story, starting with the appearance of Grendel's mother. 
Many critics are quick to write off the second act as a placeholder between the first and last of Beowulf's feats. Filler, in more crude terms. But as we'll discover, the second act carries a great deal of importance as it brings the feminine figure, both pagan and Christian, to the front of the story. If Grendel was the manifestation of man's jealousy, Grendel's mother is the spirit of revenge, and she proves to be a much more difficult monster to defeat. I sat in awed silence as the first of the nomads told the tale of that foul beast Grendel, the descendant of Cain, how for twelve long years he haunted the Hall of Heorot, preying upon King Hrothgar's Danes, how the great Geat, the man called Beowulf, journeyed from across the sea to face him. The Geat lay in wait as darkness fell, and when shadowy Grendel crept nigh, leapt forth and seized him. He tore the beast's arm clean off, leaving it with a bleeding stump. It fled and died alone in the whispering woods. I thought then that the tale was done. This Beowulf was clearly a pious warrior, blessed by the Lord to succeed in his protection, to bless him to live for eternity among the divine. But then a second nomad stood, and with a distant voice began the next verse of the story. He spoke of deep and aching pain, not the pain of the dead Grendel, but of the mother who had lost her son. The glamour of the celebration matched the triumph of the deed. Beowulf smiled to see his comrades bathed in the adoration of the Danes. One by one, the relieved men came to him and laid their hands on his shoulders in gratitude. Hrothgar, the king, laid before Beowulf a jeweled sword that gleamed in the candlelight, then a golden banner, a shirt of mail strong enough to stop the sharpest sword, a helmet adorned with golden wires both beautiful and brilliantly designed. All agreed no finer gift had been known between the seas. Even Unferth, who at first thought ill of the arrogant Geat, brought forth the great sword Hrunting and dipped his head ever so slightly as he handed it to the champion. My king, son of Halfdanna, I am not worthy of such fine gifts. I am but a thane of the Geats, a warrior who... Behold, King Hrothgar presents Beowulf, thane of Hoyalok, greatest of all the Geats, his eight finest horses. The hall sat stunned as they looked upon the horses. The grand stud at the center bore a saddle encrusted with the finest gems. It was once the king's own steed. Come now, Beowulf. Your modesty is no longer welcome in this great hall. For once more it is returned to its former glory thanks to your unmatchable feet. The king gestured around to the hall, glittering with its fineries. 
The men sat at fine oaken tables and drank endless beer and mead from their ivory horns. The walls were hung with grand tapestries and adorned with treasures rarely found. The signs of the wreckage from Beowulf's famed battle were not to be found, save for at the long end of the hall near the blazing hearth. There, upright and ominous, was the arm of Grendel. Its clawed fingers, sharp as steel, were twisted in a gesture of fearsome pain, its stump covered in the gore of its amputation. The men seemed to drift away from it, as if at any moment it might rise from the dead and cause havoc in Heorot once more. Even the insolence of Unferth was tamed by that terrible limb. He sat in silence, eyes shifting between the claw and Beowulf's person, a slow wave of respect for the great Geat washing over him. Let it be known in front of the best of my thanes and the closest of my kin that Beowulf is as an adopted son to me. His family is my family. My wealth is his. Huzzah! Huzzah! All the men cheered for this proclamation, save for Hrothgar's two legitimate sons, Hraithreach and Hrothmund. They sat on either side of Beowulf, wondering if their father had just pronounced the Geat as his preferred heir. Then it was time for the poet to speak. He told the tragic tale of Hildebur, who was forced to play the righteous role of the peacemaker, to soothe the conflict between the Danes and the Frisians. Her brother Hanaf gave her to Finn to wed. Hildebur bore a son, and the truce held for some time. But soon it soured. Finn led the Frisians against Hanaf and the Danes. Hanaf was slain and so too was Hildebur's son lost. She burned them both on the funeral pyre. Then Hengest rose and led the Danes and descended upon Frisia, murdering Finn and taking Hildebur hostage back to her homeland. She mourned in silence, as a good queen should, for her husband, her brother, her son. Though the tale was sad, the hall quickly sprang back to life, but one figure sat in quiet thought, thinking hard on the story and on the fate of her own sons. Waltheo, the gracious queen, shuddered at the thought of her husband's bold claim that Beowulf the Geat sat higher than Hrothgar's own kin. So she did her duty and brought the cup forth to her husband. Gracious Lord of Heorot, take this cup and drink deep as you have so earned. Celebrate the freedom from those plagued years. Lavish these gracious geats with untold gifts, gifts they do deserve. I have heard that you intend to adopt the young hero as your son. Remember this, though, my lord. Gracious is he who bestows his wealth upon his rightful kin. When the time comes for succession, 
Do not forget who in this hall your blood flows through. If Hrothgar or Beowulf felt offense at Waltheo's insinuation, they did little to show it. Hrothgar took the cup and drank deep. Then she brought the cup to Beowulf. For the great warrior of our time, a collar of the finest quality, worn by Freya herself. Accept this gift. Be a guide for my sons. Show them the ways of heroism. For you are the one who returned Heorot to its glory. Now, drink deep and allow yourself the pleasures of the evening. Beowulf took the cup and drank. And so the soldiers once more joined in revelry and used Heorot as it was meant to be used. They sang and played the harp and danced. The mead flowed and the beer flowed, and there was never an empty cup in the hall. They pounded the tables and toasted to bravery and told the stories of old. If only they knew. If only they knew that the threads of fate had been spun, that the night was already planned. First, Hrothgar went to his chambers. Then Beowulf departed for the night to the new home that had been prepared for him. But the revelry continued, and none noticed that their guardian was gone. And once they all had their fill, their eyes drifted shut. But not all those eyes would open come morn, for the Danes would soon be reminded that monsters are never far away. Coming up, we'll meet Grendel's mother. Now back to the story. The weight the author places on describing the predicaments of Hildebur and Waltheo just before the attack of Grendel's mother cannot be ignored. He gives two distinct perspectives on motherhood. The mourning mother, Hildebur, who burns her son on a funeral pyre and is forced to bite her tongue as her life is decided around her. And the plotting mother, Waltheo, who wants to make sure that Hrothgar's love for Beowulf does not extend so far as to threaten her son's inheritance. By giving these two as a contrast, the author seems to suggest that the role of a woman is to passively accept her position, to be a peacekeeper between tribes and a cupbearer between kin, to ignore tragedy when it is necessary. In this way, we can almost come to respect Grendel's mother, for she is the matriarch that seeks to make things right, that will not sit idly by after her son was murdered. When she comes, her vengeance is determined and terrible. They slept soundly from the drink, on the floor, on the benches, on the tops of the tables, the she-wolf crept over them, not quite as quiet as her son. Her domain was beneath the depths of the great lake, where silence was oft more abundant than not. She was hot with fury, but still knew a mother's patience. She took stock of the soldiers here, their pathetic faces, their useless armor, 
their listless snores. The thing she sought was at the end of the hall, standing erect, the noble claw that once belonged to her son. It still looked dangerous and dignified in the pale light of the moon. No man slept near it, cowards that they were. She looked for the one called Beowulf, the one the trees whispered about and the spirits of the woods hid from. She thought to slit his throat in his sleep, for that wretched man deserved no honor to maim her son in such a way. She grabbed that piece of her son so that she might bury him whole. She moved to turn away, but in doing so, the claw bumped a table and made the noise that decided her fate. Fiend! Arise, Danes! The thanes of Hrothgar, there is another intruder in our midst! The stirring men rubbed the bleariness from their eyes, and in that moment saw before them the thing that invaded their domain. It had a woman's form, but with a scaly and wild quality to it. Her skin looked hardened and plated, and her claws, though not quite as large and strong as her son's, had a more dexterous quality to them. And as Ashera sounded the rallying cry, Grendel's mother reached out and grasped the thane's neck. She squeezed, crushing the bones instantly. His speech was cut short as his head lulled lifelessly to the side. As the men seized their weapons, the monster swung Ashera's body over her shoulder. In a fluid and sinuous motion, faster than the eyes of any of the men could follow, she leapt upon the table and with the grace of a water dancer glided between their swinging blades. She reached the exit of the hall and sprinted through it without hesitation. Corpse across her back, her son's great claw gripped tight to her bosom. When the dazed thanes came to their senses, they went to tell their king of the perils the knight had brought. They described the monstrous woman, fluid and deadly, how she crushed Ashera's life from him with such ease and lack of pity that they felt cold just to think of it. There was little honor in such a death, little reason to trust fate when such a destiny befell one of their best. Then Hrothgar wept, for Ashera was his most trusted and beloved advisor. Without him, he felt blind. This is surely the work of the kin of Grendel, his mother who lives in the depths below. She would not emerge for a trifling thing. She seeks revenge on those that killed her son. What foul beast is this that even in death he haunts my treacherous dreams? The thanes gathered around their lord, worried that such a tragedy would strike a dent in the sharpness of his mind. But when Hrothgar lifted his face from his hands, his cheeks were dry and his look was hardened. There was not fury or pain in his eyes, only the steeled and pinched look of determination. Beowulf, bring to me Beowulf. When Beowulf arrived, Hrothgar told him all that had come to pass. 
the terrible mother that came to visit them, the death of dear Ashera, the theft of his corpse, how she took back her son's claw. Before he even began to ask Beowulf for help once again, the great Geat turned to his men. He commanded them to bring forth the armor gifted to him the night previous. And if his mother is so terrible as this, then what of the father? There is no father that we know. A miracle, then? The worst kind. The mother was... blessed? Cursed. A daughter of Cain. But such a curse as this makes her deadly. And now, without kin, she has little to lose. So they saddled a horse for Beowulf and one for Hrothgar. The best of the Danes mounted, so too did the Geats, ready to follow their leader to the depths of hell. They made their way to the Whispering Woods, where a fortnight prior they had followed Grendel's blood to his corpse. Now they followed the blood of their brother, Ashera, and knew he was to meet the worst of fates. The spirits of the woods no longer shrank from the men. They had been emboldened by the sight of Grendel's mother, their monstrous queen of the deep. The spirits watched the men from the treetops and whispered of the men's weakness. Of how man might be defeated, of how, with Grendel's mother returned, they might reclaim their woods. The eyes of the Danes and the Geats alike shifted this way and that through the trees, searching for the specters that they knew were there but could not see, whose whispers infected their minds and sent a damp shiver through their armored forms. All except for Beowulf, who stared forward transfixed, as though finally looking upon the threads of his own fate. When they reached the shore where Grendel's mother lived, they saw, lying against the softly lapping tide, the severed head of Ashera, eyes hollow and empty, no longer alight with the wisdom they had held in life. Hrothgar dismounted and took up Ashera's head in his hands, and he wept. Perhaps it is folly to try and fight off these monsters of the unknown. It is as though we fight against an idea, against hatred itself. Beowulf, I see no hope if you pursue her. Beowulf dismounted and laid a hand upon the shoulder of his friend. And if there is no hope, then death has already been woven in the tapestry of fate. The thing that calls me forward is what I am. I can no more fight against it than a mother can resist avenging her slain son. For if she kills me, would that be so wrong? I have served her injustice. The mother is not the retainer. Perhaps not. Perhaps it is against tradition for a woman to show such violence. But it is also not in the nature of a king to weep at the loss of a comrade. It is not tradition for Danes and Geats to fight side by side, for men to pursue monsters into their own dens. For a brief moment, all the men lowered their eyes in shame, for they had corrupted the home of Grendel. 
Had his murderous rage been justified, had he killed in defense of his home, surely they would do no different should the Jutes or the Frisians try to take their land. For a moment, they knew that they were monsters, and now they strode into the hall of Grendel's mother, unannounced, with only the thought of blood on their minds. And now, I must go forth to honor the same duty that brought the demon's mother to Heorot. And no matter what fate shall bring, whether I float bloated to the surface or burst through with the vigor of victory, the feud shall end here, for I am the end of her revenge. Death was taught to Beowulf as a boy, then again as a young man, then once more when he slew his first victim on the battlefield. He knew that it would come. He knew that long ago with the birth of Yggdrasil, his fate was woven by the hand of the Norns. But never before had he quite understood it until now. It did not matter if he chose to go into the lake or not, the choice had already been made. He could just as easily spin on his heels and run from this fight, only to be mauled by a bear as he fled. What he did did not matter. It would never change the moment and circumstance of his parting. And so he would do the thing that was the right thing, to protect his kin, to save those that could not save themselves. And then Beowulf gave the conditions of his death. The great sword Runting shall be returned to Unferth. The riches you bestowed upon me shall be sent to Hoyalak. May he live long and serve his people well. The Geats that stand with me, promise them your protection. Dear Hrothgar, you once called me your son, and I too now shall call you my father. Speak well of me. And with no further warning, Beowulf dove headfirst into the lake. He was fully adorned in his glittering mail, but when he was only a few meters deep, the black depths swallowed all signs of him. He swam down and down, blindly pursuing what seemed only to be a sightless chasm. He felt great rushes of water and knew that he was being swarmed by the monsters of the deep. But they had yet to attack, probably as they noticed his armor and feared his retribution. He kept descending that never-ending crater. For a full day, he went down and down. His muscles began to tense, and he started to fear that the mother had fooled his prideful desire. From above, Grendel's mother heard a splash against the lake. Unusual, so he had come, as she knew he would. The one who killed her son. She waited in the depths and the comfortable darkness, hidden only by the void of the water. It took hours, a day perhaps. Then he came. A disturbance in the lake, the bane of Grendel, the thing that did not belong in her domain. 
He swam listlessly down with no direction and little purpose. So she bolted forth from the darkness, and before he could resist, she wrapped him in her iron embrace. He struggled against her with an incredible might, with such phenomenal strength that she understood how he had bested her son. But this was not the home of man. The sea woman knew this domain, and so she held fast and dragged him deeper into the icy depths. Coming up, Beowulf makes his stand against the mighty matriarch. Now back to the story. The anonymous author of Beowulf makes a point of establishing Grendel as fatherless. Because of the poem's Christian influence, it's difficult to separate the meaning of this mother from the Virgin Mary. But why connect a treacherous monster to such a revered figure? In her 1986 article, Grendel's Mother as Epic Antitype of the Virgin and Queen, Jane Chance argues that Grendel's mother represents the antithesis of the typical idea of a pure woman, the queen and the virgin. The author cleverly does this by bookending the battle with Grendel's mother with tales of women who he would have deemed correct in their behavior. The tragic story of Hildebert reveals a woman decimated by the trite conflict between her kin, yet there's little she can do but go with the tides of fate. The graceful queen, Waltheo, must bring the cup to Beowulf after her husband has verbally adopted him, thereby threatening the legacy of her sons. Above all, Chance argues, is the emphasis on the woman as a peacemaker, She's there to bind houses, to deliver the cup, to be the calm presence in the violent squabbles. Waltheo is never seen in moments of conflict, but rather in the time in between, when bonds are forged and celebrated. Grendel's mother stands in contrast to these women as a disruptor of peace. The author describes her as monstrous, a sea wolf, briny and fearsome. But from a modern perspective, it's hard not to feel sympathy for Grendel's mother, who must act as the purveyor of retribution. She seems admirable for not accepting the fate handed to her by the brutish men of the story, and for doing what she can to avenge her child. It is this reality that makes her clash with Beowulf feel more like a sad inevitability than an epic face-off between titans. Beowulf came into the Sea Wolf's battle hall. It was covered wall to wall in treasures of all kinds, so filled with gold that the dull walls glimmered brilliantly in the flickering light of the torches. It was uncomfortably warm after his swim through the cold depths. He remembered the powerful grip of the matriarch, the onslaught of sea beasts that attacked him with vicious tusks, his futile attempts to reach his sword, and then nothing. He had no memory of entering the cave, but dazed as he was, he looked forth and saw the dreadful woman watching him from across the battle hall. He rose. Beowulf did not wait a second. He drew the sword hunting, the light of the battle, 
and charged forth. He did not hold back, delivering a great blow to the sea woman's head. But the sword merely bounced off her skin, as though he had struck the very walls of the cave. Beowulf was furious. He cast aside the sword and took a stance, prepared again to fight without weapons. Then the two came together in a violent embrace. They rolled through the treasure that covered the floor. He got the upper hand, but she was quick and fierce. She cast him to the ground and leapt upon him with the grace of a wolf, sitting astride his waist so he was pinned. She leaned in close to look upon her son's killer. He could feel her warm breath upon him. Beowulf struggled to no avail. She drew her sword and brought it down to pierce his flesh. But the weapon would not puncture the chainmail vest. Beowulf felt the force of the blow and knew that without his armor, he surely would have died. Not waiting a moment, he took advantage of her surprise to throw her off and leapt to his feet. Frantically, his eyes searched around the cave for something, anything to defend himself, until finally, the grace and glory of God directed his gaze past the gold and onto the walls, where hung a sword larger and more brilliant than anything he had ever seen. As they told me about the sword, the nomads would not say it, but I knew that in that moment, Beowulf felt the protection and purity of God, and a man as pious and good as he said his righteous thanks. Praise be to the Lord yet to be discovered in this land. Glory to him on high. Then Beowulf took the great sword and with both hands brought it down upon Grendel's mother, thereby eliminating her pain. When the fight was finished, he walked further into the cave. In the dark recess, he found the corpse of Grendel. He used the great sword to cut off his head. Grendel's blood sizzled, dissolving the blade with fervor until only the hilt remained. Then Beowulf breathed deep. For the time, his work was done. It has been three days. Surely our hope is lost. Mayhaps hope is lost, but we will wait for our generous Lord all the same. On the shores of the lake, the mood was a somber one. Much time had passed, and not so much as a bubble had formed on the surface of the water. The Danes sighed and went home, if only to assure their families that tragedy had not befallen them too. But the Geats chose to wait. Never would they leave their countrymen behind. Their patience was rewarded with an incredible sight. Beowulf, the great warrior, emerging from the lake, 
the head of the monster Grendel in one hand, a bare but immensely beautiful sword hilt in the other. They returned to the Great Hall Heorot and were met with fanfare equal to the first great victory. Beowulf embraced the Danes, and they embraced him, showering him with even more gifts, even more elaborate exclamations of gratitude. They drank for many nights, and Heorot remained pleasantly undisturbed. Then it was time for Beowulf to depart. The Geat and the King embraced. If ever you need aid, you must call and know that I will take to the seas with a thousand spears. The might of the Geats will blend itself with the might of the Danes, that we might become an unmovable wall of wood and spear. Your elegance, dear Beowulf, as always knows no bounds. There is little talent you do not possess. Great strength, sharp wits, poetic speech, these are gifts which naturally wrap themselves with your spirit. You shall be a king one day, and the might of our peoples shall always be one. Then they left with the feeling that they would never see each other again, which made them both sad and fulfilled at once, for both were glad to have known the other. Hrothgar had a kingdom to rule, and Beowulf had wealth to bestow upon his people. Back in the land of the Geats, his uncle accepted the gracious gifts and showered Beowulf with praise. Years passed. Hoyalok perished in battle, and then his son after him. Beowulf became king of the Geats and ruled for many years. He was a good king. He watched over his people and was revered. But as twilight approached his life, and he looked on the legacy of his kingdom, something stirred from deep underground. With brutal fury emerged the greatest monster Beowulf would ever stand against. The story of Grendel's mother plays a vital role in the poem of Beowulf. In many ways, it helps to round out the portrait of the hero. Yes, Beowulf is conceited, self-righteous, reckless, and stubborn, but we see that he does not fear death, and he will go to whatever lengths necessary to protect those he calls friends. Grendel's mother is a strange character of contradictions. She's a direct contrast to the regal and passive queens of the story, but she's also a contrast to her son. The author outright claims that she does not have the same strength as a male monster, the reason she flees the Hall of Heorot rather than fight a crowd of warriors. But at the same time, her fight with Beowulf is much more illustrious and cinematic than his wrestling match with Grendel. It is a much more difficult challenge for Beowulf to overcome. Adding another wrinkle, Scholar Jane Chance suggests that their fight contains sexual connotations. Beowulf and Grendel's mother wrestle in the cave, tossing and turning, looking to gain advantage in position. The mother straddles him as she tries to deal her final blow, and the author regularly states that she is trying to penetrate Beowulf's armor. 
Regardless, the fight is important because it truly awakens Beowulf's acceptance of death. As we'll see, this acceptance becomes a key factor in the way he protects his people later on in the tale and the way he confronts his most formidable adversary. Thanks again for tuning in to Mythology. We'll be back Tuesday with our third and final episode on Beowulf. You can find more episodes of Mythology and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythology, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythology on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythology in the search bar. If you enjoy Mythology, you'll love my other podcast, Tales. Tales presents fairy tales the way they were originally told, orally and unadulterated. Traditional fairy tales aren't exactly suitable for children, and every other Saturday we dive into another dark, classic tale. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll be back next week with the conclusion of this epic tale. Mythology was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Mythology was written by Drew Cole, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Sky King, Harris Markson, and Dan Velasquez. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mythology.